All That Matters. I'm Josh Turpin. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Well, All That Matters tells stories about arts and culture. Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question. Today's question, well, I think I can explain it best with a little clip from the movie Office Space. I love that movie. <laughs> Me too. Okay, so you know how the movie is kind of about how meaningless half of our jobs are? And there are these two guys, both named Bob, brought into this particular office as efficiency experts to figure out what everybody does there. And they get this one guy who takes calls from customers and brings the message to the software engineers. But it turns out that he doesn't actually take the calls himself, his secretary does, and he doesn't actually deliver the message to the engineers. So the Bobs just kind of look at him and go, What, what would you say you do here? Look, I already told you, I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand that? What the hell is wrong with you people? That's so mean. Mean, but also a feeling that I think a lot of us have when people who work in the arts tell us what their jobs are called. Like, think of all those job titles that scroll by in the credits. Like best boys and gaffers? Exactly. So today's question is, what would you say you do here? And hopefully by the end, you'll be able to tell your friends what a producer and a projectionist do. And a dolly grip. Well, when I think of a musician, I think of someone who plays a musical instrument or maybe someone who sings. But music producers are musicians too. Although it's hard to visualize what they do. So our reporter Rowan Eby asked her friend Cass... He's an Edmonton-based music producer who performs under the name Kazmaga. Here's Rowan's conversation with Kazmaga. So music producer is actually a really loose term. It can mean a lot of different things, um, depending on what genre of music you're producing. I work mostly, mostly within hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are a hip-hop music producer. I am a hip-hop um, practitioner who produces music, I would say. And even when I'm not working within hip-hop, I'm working using a hip-hop workflow, which uh, usually ends up being, or meaning that you're you're kind of isolated. You have a bunch of equipment around you. Um, all this equipment makes sounds, and you record it through a multi-track recording. Um, like I don't play any actual instruments. Like I'm not classically trained in anything, um, but I do know how to like reproduce notes, and I can sample and then play on top of it. Play things on top of that. Um, I have synths, so like I, I play music, but I don't. I don't. Too simple are these words used to express this feeling as a curse. A curse word love is just a rehearsler that some caveman bum came up with because he cursed the work. He was the first jerk, and before him, men worked hard to coerce a woman's worth. Do you produce music for tracks that have only your work on them, or do you uh, work in collaboration with? other artists who um, like call you up and say, Kaz, produce my music for me? Um, it's an interesting question because often when musicians are 
jamming. Um, there's there's sort of a musicianship that is respected and seen as you know musicianship. So most musicians who might jam or need work done uh, won't necessarily come to me unless it's a matter of like composing. So arranging the composition, um, which is again like taking what they've done, resampling it into uh, some software and having like an intro, you know, verse, hook, bridge, and kind of arranging it in that way. Um, and maybe adding some drums to it. But if they have an, their own drummer, then it's chopping up those drums and doing the same thing. So, yes and no. It's never like, hey, can you play bass on this track? Or hey, can you put keys on this? It's usually more of a, yeah, we have this thing, we don't really know what to do with it. Can you make it something that's like, we can listen to it. People will enjoy listening to. So you edit other people's music to make it more enjoyable. And I don't, I wouldn't even say that. I, 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 I mean, I guess I build a story with it. I try and build. It's like, I guess if you were interviewing like someone who's long-winded and then like cutting out all the like extra stuff that didn't really need to be added into the story and just making like a really solid compressed version of that story mm-hmm. that, uh, is easier to share. Mm-hmm. When I create music, I'm always trying to just create something that adds um, variety to what already exists. So, and and I don't. I feel like I, I do have my own style. Um, influences are definitely like hip hop. Um, and it depends on the job as well. Um, if someone asks me to make it sound more like, you know, primo, I'll, I'll do that. If they want it to sound, um, have a lot more musicianship to it, mm-hmm. then I will arrange it in that way and get some musicians in to play some horns or guitar or solo or whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I kind of take on whatever the job requires. But I do always try to make it unique in its own way and I don't like creating just like cookie cutter mm-hmm. music um, if people need that they also don't necessarily go to me you can download that if you want that right so <laughs> so you make you you take all of these tracks and you make a collage of yes them. do you have a story that would help us understand what a hip-hop practitioner who produces music does sure um, so I like run workshops sometimes, um, a lot of time with young people, um, a lot of time with mixed groups, and uh, I have a loop station that has five channels to loop different things on. You can overdub um, each channel as well and plug samplers into that loop station. And samplers are essentially these pads. If you've ever seen a machine with like squares on it, mm-hmm. um, that, that's a, a, an MPC style sampler. And you push each square and a different sound comes out of each one and these are sounds you put into them. They so always look like so much fun. They're so much fun. <laughs> um, and I get people to just press buttons and record them to a, a, a BPM, which is the beat per minute count. Okay. So it'll be like a, usually it's a four. So tick, 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 
tick, tick, tick, you know, that thing. Um, and they make music and it doesn't require knowing how to play any instruments. You just make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is hip hop. Um, mostly it's the, the attitude of do it yourself. Um, a lot of these machines were built with that in mind. Um, but they're not necessarily hip hop machines. Like certain things were, you know, went to certain genres of music. So no genre really ever owns a piece of equipment. You can use any piece of equipment for any genre or any style of, of recording for any genre. Mm-hmm. But you use this particular one in your workshops. Yes, um, because it matches with the do-it-yourself mm-hmm. um, attitude and culture mm-hmm. that hip-hop brings to the table where you don't need to know anything necessarily. You just have to listen to your, your insides and, and make whatever it tells you to make. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. I have a pretty good idea of what you do now. Awesome. Lions don't lose sleep over a pains and sheep. Wolves don't lose sleep over a pains and sheep. Eagles don't lose sleep over a pains and sheep. It was just a bad dream. I'll await you when you're free. Lions don't lose sleep over Thanks to Kaz Mega for speaking with us. And thanks to reporter Rowan EB for bringing us that story. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. I'm Chris Changin Phillips. And I'm Josh Turpin. Today, we're asking, what would you say you do here? What are all those art jobs that nobody understands? Well, the top of my list when we first talked about the show was, what the heck does a grip do? So I got a hold of Clint Silzer in Calgary. Clint's worked as a dolly grip on the set of CBC's TV show Heartland. And the first thing I asked him was, how cool is it to see your name in the credits? Yeah, when um, you can see them. Yeah, <laughs> when they're not in point six font. Yeah, when they're not in a point six font and squished to one side and blasted through at the end of an episode. Yeah, you can if you can pause them and it's unblurred. Yeah, those guys, all those people. <laughs> uh, well, hello, my name is Clint Solzer. Um, I am the dolly grip on Heartland. The the dolly grip's position is on a film set is to uh, facilitate any camera movement that might be. Uh, taking place within the shot. Um, it's also a, a kind of the camera support position. The GRIPS role as a whole, as a, as a department, because I work under the GRIP department, uh, the GRIP department's role is uh, lighting and camera support. Um, so we help you know, set the lights up, um, do any kind of lighting control that might need to happen. Um, and the, and the, they also do any kind of camera support. So if the camera needs to get high up on, on some scaffolding, for instance, or maybe they wanted to mount a, a camera to the roof of a car, it's the grip's job to kind of do that. Um, where the dolly term comes in is if you ever see like the making of movies and whatnot, and you see, usually the dolly's well-featured in those because it's a very interesting aspect, you'll see what looks like train tracks laid out on, on the ground, and you'll see a dolly on top of those train tracks and the camera's positioned on top of that. That is all my, my responsibility, um, is to lay that track down, get it all nice and level, nice and smooth for any kind of camera motion that might, that they, the director or the director of photography or the camera operator in collaboration work together to determine what, what needs to happen for the shot. And then it's my job to facilitate all that. 
I think I've seen what you're talking about in like the making of featurettes where yeah. they're, they're showing like, yeah, yeah the, the camera walking by and the actors walking towards the camera on the track. Yeah, and that's exactly what you know. Uh, the dolly grip's role is is to is to make that camera movement possible. Okay, what's the coolest shot that you've been part of? Um, well, that would be uh, uh, something that requires the use of a crane, probably, uh, because the crane you you can get various crane arm lengths, um, and some of the ones that we've done. Um, some of the crane lengths that you, that you can get, you can get up to a hundred foot crane arms now, um, and even longer for that matter. Um, and you can get some that are just like way up, uh, start way up high in the air, and then come down, follow an airplane around a, uh, a runway, wow. and 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 push in onto somebody's face right at the very on the ground, and you never know how in how in the world they accomplish such a a crazy looking shot. Josh, you've actually worked as a grip, right? Yeah, actually, I've been a, a, a dolly grip. Have you ever gotten to do that with like one of those big cranes? Um, not a big, big crane, but uh, definitely one of those ones that they use to go up to the, you know, telephone posts. Nice for a shot. That was nice. That was cool. Um, also, just dolly dolly cranes for the camera. Where you don't go up, but the camera does. They use those like they're like a pivotal system. Nice. That's yeah. a cool job. Okay, so the grips on set adjust the lighting and the camera equipment. That makes sense. And the dolly grip kind of moves the camera around on a crane or a dolly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next up, I want to know what the heck is a best boy? So Edmonton's <laughs> Dean Davy filled me in on not just what a best boy does, but how it fits into everybody else's job. I called him up on a very cold Edmonton winter morning. Just this morning, uh, my girlfriend Emily woke me up uh, early in the morning. It was still late, and she said it was cold, and I told her to go back to bed, but she was right. So we got up uh, and just found that uh, the furnace wouldn't kick back on. Oh. If you get it fixed, then you really will be the best boy. <laughs> uh, hello, my name is Dean Davey. I work uh, in various capacities in the film and video community here in Edmonton. I was key grip on Delmar and Marta. Without going into the entire history of cinema, um, we should look at the cinematographer because the cinematographer is, of course, responsible for the cinematic look of your project. But in order to facilitate that, what the cinematographer needs is three departments. So the, the, the director of photography is in charge of the camera department, which I think is a little obvious. But also, uh, they're also directly in charge of the lighting and grip department. So the lighting department feeds all of the set with electricity. So whoever needs it, either on set or back of the trailers or, or, or uh, in a different room or whatever, the lighting guys will bring all of the power for set and they will put the lamps up. They'll put the, the proper fixtures up on a stick and turn them on. But when it's time to articulate that light, instead of just having a bright beam coming through a window, then a grip will come in and put diffusion in front of it so it'll soften the light, so it may look like an overcast day. And then if you need a, a hard shadows, like in a, in a noir movie, then uh, it's a grip that puts an object between the light and the set that'll create those shadows. Like on, I'm thinking of like all those atmospheric scenes in Daredevil, where you're like... Oh, Daredevil's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of shadow in that. Cool. All right. 
So uh, tell me, what exactly does a best boy do? Something you should know is that uh, grips are not the only department with best boys or best people. Um, there are many departments that could have that position. It's kind of being phased out, and it depends on who is your head of department or your key uh, in position there. Uh, what the best boy does is actually the first assistant to the head of department. So, uh, for example, in grips, the best boy grip will have all the regular duties of the grip. So still have to shape light and uh, be on set and assist with camera movements. But also takes care of all of the departmental inventory, takes care of all of the departmental staffing concerns, making sure that the special equipment arrives on the right day. The best boy or best person is the liaison between the department and production. And that is more of an issue when, if you're in studio, things are easy. It's really easy to communicate with people. But when you're on location, you could be uh, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. You could be in a different province or even a different country. So having your department, uh, your department needs a voice. And that voice back to the production office is the best person. Uh, Lighting, there'll be a best boy. Every time there's probably a grip best boy. So it's kind of like kind of like a, a best man at a wedding, kind of like the person who like stands up and, and does like all the hard work behind the scenes and like supports the I think on paper it could be compared to that, but I think the wedding planner might feel stiffed in that definition because the yeah, I think if in that case perhaps the best boy is like the department head and perhaps the wedding planner is more like the best boy or best person. I don't, it's not a direct wash. It's not a direct correlation, I don't think. Thanks to Clint Silzer and Dean Davey for telling us what they do. I've actually, um, I've worked as a lead man. And what a lead man is, is similar to a best boy, but it's for the um, art department. Um, so you're the assistant to the production designer of the film and you are the man on set, the liaison between what's happening in the production and on set. Hmm. So It's funny how gendered some of these positions are. Best boy, lead man. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting actually. Um, but not really because it's Hollywood. So, But it's changing, hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, maybe they'll be called lead lead there you go lead boom period (laughs) you're listening to all that matters from cgsr today we're talking about all those jobs you've always wondered about i love movies i watch movies all the time (laughs) sorry i have to laugh because it's it's like it's too true but have you ever worked with someone whose job title made you think we spoke with CJSR DJ Brat Syme, a.k.a. Bob Salad, about his job as a projectionist at Edmonton's Metro Cinema, the art form behind it, and how it affects the community. Uh, well, I'm responsible for putting the uh, image onto the screen, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, I was a little more involved because we'd received like actual 35 millimeter film that would have come in two big canisters. But now, 90% of the time, the films are on something called a DCP, which stands for Digital Cinema Package. Mm-hmm. And those came about because uh, kind of after 35 millimeter film was kind of in its dying days, studios were just shipping out Blu-rays and DVDs to like film film houses. Mm-hmm. 
and those were getting pirated like crazy. So uh, studios came up with this idea of making like a heavily encrypted drive that's its own drive that they ship through the mail that's like impossible to uh, unencrypt without mm-hmm. like all this information. So we receive one of those. We plug it essentially directly into our digital projector. Mm-hmm. It It's called, it, uh, it ingests the film and that's like the that's like the actual name of the inter the term yeah ingests the ingestion <laughs> of the film and then that's pretty much it so it's in a way it's much more hands-off than it was mm-hmm. but i think like because it's digital now like the the things that can go wrong with any sort of digital system like it's like your computer at home right like mm-hmm. if something goes wrong with it you're like what <laughs> and then you kind of have to call do somebody. It. Yeah, or... but if that's happening during a film mm-hmm. and something goes wrong, it's it's it was much easier when something went wrong to repair a thirty-five millimeter film mm-hmm. because if something goes wrong dig- digitally because that's basically all the projectionist ever did was like this uh, almost like a film repairman. You know, like mm-hmm. once you get it going, then there's really nothing to do, and then you're just sort of there to make sure nothing goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So, so you arrive to work. You go up into the booth, and then you put on a reel of film onto the projector, mm-hmm. and then you press play. And then, what happens? Do you have to change it halfway through? Yeah. Well, uh, it's like in the film Fight Club when there's, you know, when he's right, the film exactly. Two little cigarette burns. Mm-hmm. So basically, while the film is playing, I don't really have to do anything mm-hmm. except for like the last two minutes of each reel, because the film comes, you break it down, it comes on two big. Or it comes on six little reels. Okay. And you have to transfer those onto six other metal reels. Mm-hmm. So while those reels, while that one reel is playing, uh, once it gets down to like two minutes, then there'll be a little like blip in the corner. And that blip tells me like, wake up. And then I have like five seconds and then the other blip comes and then I have to hit all these switches to uh, flip the sound over and the picture over and flip everything over to another projector which then like kicks in right. and when it's done right it's like uh, you can't tell right and you then there is it at some point the two projectors are playing the same footage from two different reels uh, nope it's no. all it's instantaneous it switches over yeah wow that's quite yeah. a that's, that takes quite skill I would think in art form and Timing. Uh, it takes timing. It's one of those things where, like, you can't blink or you'll miss it. Like, that's, I guess, the, that was sort of the strangest thing. Like, a lot of my job four years ago depended on not blinking for those few seconds or not being, like, looking, like, you're looking right at the screen. So if you look away for a second to see, like, if you're thinking to yourself, like, boy, maybe it should have happened by now. And then you look away and then guaranteed you'll miss it, right? Give me a, a rough estimate of a date of when did it change from being hands-on uh, to the digital? Uh, well, it happened pretty abruptly. I'd say at Metro, I'd say maybe like four years ago. Four years ago. Yeah, four years ago, like I'd say still like 80% of what we were receiving was on 35 millimeter. And oh, then okay. it was just like one day I went to work and that was over and like overnight 35 millimeter had died and now if we get a 35 millimeter film it's like a, like special, a special event special yeah. deal 
Yeah, or a special film that like uh, the filmmaker mm-hmm. made especially for 35 millimeter, or that's sort of part of the presentation of it, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice, but nothing looks as good as 35 millimeter. Will the new Tarantino film come in that? I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I'm not sure how exactly that's going to work out because I know it's on 70 millimeter, like mm-hmm. uh, like super scope or cinema yeah. scope or something like that. Yeah, that's but right. I don't know. Like, there's not a lot of places that have 35 millimeter projectors anymore. Like, I don't think any of the commercial houses, other than the Metro, have 35 millimeter okay. projectors. Thanks to Brad Syme in Edmonton for sharing. Okay. I want to do one last one. All episode, we've been trying to figure out what all those arts jobs are that fly by in the credits at the end of the movie. And a little while ago, I went to go see this movie, Moybridge, about the photographer Edward Moybridge, who pioneered stop-motion photography in the U.S. in the 1800s. And at the end of the movie, when the props master's name went by in the credits, half the audience cheered. So afterwards, I talked to the woman at the center of all that cheering. Here's Tony Quinn in Edmonton. This film is, um, you know, it's about the godfather of of motion picture. He's the first guy who had captured uh, captured motion in a photograph and did it in a sequential sequence. So as a prop master, um, your job is not only to <laughs> um, kind of fake, you know, props are kind of fake for a film, but we had to recreate those cameras. Uh, and in doing so, it was actually quite realistic in the sense that we were able to um, show the audience what it was like in um, the late 1800s. So a prop master is an individual um, who is in charge of the property a film um, or a theater production has. And a prop is really anything that an actor touches uh, or interacts with. And my job as a prop master is to to do many things. It's to organize um, what needs to be seen and touched in, in the film. Uh, so you correspond with the schedule, you source the props. They wanted me because they knew I could actually build it and not just find somebody to build it, but could actually keep on on track. And theory pieces are always harder, for sure. And that was one of the big challenges. I don't. I I must have been nuts for taking it on as my first production. <laughs> but period pieces uh, are in general harder because you have a set style that you're going for. Whereas in, in regular feature films or TV shows, uh, there's an art director who, who kind of picks the style that you want and you can have a little bit more flexibility. I mean, there's many things that we custom built or um, we kind of fudged an existing historical piece. Uh, like there's a magic lantern that we um, kind of adapted, which is a pr- basically a projector, um, like an old-fashioned projector with a... Um, a candle in it so it gets projected up on screen and you move you move the item it started with just like a, a single pane of glass where you move back and forth and then Edward Moybridge invented a spinning wheel so he was able to turn it and actually create that motion just from um, this, this concept so that is a historical accurate piece that we had to make and that was just one of the, <laughs> the many things uh, all of the cameras that Edward uses, uh, they're, they're handmade by myself and our crew. I think, yeah, I designed them. It was a lot of work. <laughs> and, you know, that being said, it, it was such a beautiful movie, and there, I wish I could have had more time 
really make the most out of the props that I was doing, but I didn't have a budget. The whole budget um, was $3,000, and I actually went over budget for $4,000, and that was including um, rentals, that was including uh, materials, and, you know, we had to to cover some individual costs as well. So the thing that I was most proud of uh, in, in Edward was the burgundy cameras, they have burgundy bellows, and they actually moved and they pivoted as well. So if you had the moving parts, you could actually probably input those into the camera body. And they just looked, they looked like brilliant. I loved those. I wish I was able to take one of those home. Thanks to Tony Quinn and Edmonton for speaking with us. Well, that's all the time we have today on All That Matters. Thanks to reporter Rowan E.B. for her story today. And thanks to the Film and Video Arts Society in Edmonton and Gordon Imlock for helping us find some of our guests. All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Our theme music is by Dukashi Teru. We love it when you write us. Tweet us and let us know what you thought of the show. We're at ATMCJSR. We're also on Facebook, and our email address is allthatmatters at cjsr.com. Our website is allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Josh Turpin. Thanks for listening.